This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Why Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Why Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Welcome to a special extra wheezy holiday edition of Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get their tips and tricks for you. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with ways to check it out. Yeah, and for coughing into the mic now, this week. On today's episode, we're going to head to the pub, but first we're going to start with some uh, feedback. But over in the pub, we've got some interesting stuff about Denny's trip to St. Louis, uh, a little bit of look at some sexism, and some homebrew competition uh, that happens in some strange places. Uh, then we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit about the library, and then finally, we're going to break into our Portland interview at Breakside Brewing Company. Yeah, uh, we really want to thank Ben Edmonds for his time and generosity uh, with his beer that day. It was a, a great time to sit down and chat with Ben, and uh, we'll have some real interesting info from him for you. Yeah, and we have Paco, Paco the Brewdog. 
<laughs> what was that? Oh, that's right. I forgot about the brew dog. And like usual, we're going to be closing out with a round of Ask Denny and Drew, where we see if we can maybe come up with halfway decent answers to your questions. And then we'll uh, hit up a quick tip and uh, move on out of here. But before we get to all that, we want to remind you that you can support us by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Once you get there, you can click on the American Homebrewers Association link to join the AHA and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine, both of which are great things to do. You can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to Brew Your Own. And when you do either of those things, a little bit of that money comes back to the podcast to help us finance uh, what we're doing here. The other thing you can do there is help us support our charity. And this is the uh, final time this year for you to be able to do that. Our charity for the second half of 2016 is the Children's Tumor Foundation, which supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. So uh, kick us a little bit of money. We'll kick it to them. And after the first of the year, we'll be picking a new charity for all of us to go support. Yeah, and we'll just warn you right now, uh, more than likely, it's going to be a dog-based charity. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. Yeah, right. Okay, so I guess we have a few things to talk about here before we head over to the pub. Number one, our wonderful friends at Pico Brew, also a sponsor, have decided that it's time to give all of our listeners a Christmas present. If you have been looking at buying a Zymatic or Pico Brewing system, you can now get 200 bucks off the Zymatic or 150 bucks off the Pico by going to their website, picobrew.com, and using the order codes Z-Y-M-D-E-N-N-Y, Zymdenny for a Zymatic, or Picodenny, P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, for a Pico. Uh, save 200 bucks on the Zymatic, like I said, 150 on the Pico. Killer little brewing systems, very handy. Very cool, and, uh, you know, if you've been looking at uh, possibly picking one of those up, there's a way to put some of your money back into your pocket. Yeah, and apparently uh, the codes Pico Drew and Zyme Drew will get you a discount of exactly nothing. Yeah, that's exactly true, uh, you know. <laughs> what can I say? All right. Well, and then the other part is I know we had been telling people that we were going to try and get the IBU results out uh, for this episode. However, uh, due to life events being life, uh, there's a little bit of a delay. Plus, also, we're hoping that with the delay, we're going to have a chance to have a special guest on the IBU result episode. Something I think that you guys will really, really dig. Yeah, if we can, if we can pull it off, it'll be really cool, man. I'm, I'm hoping that it all works out. So uh, we got some response to uh, to the little uh, story we did about beer glasses, huh? Oh boy, howdy, did we? Uh, now, I mean, usually I think of the feedback as being the point in time when you guys are telling us that we're doing something wrong. But you'll remember that last episode we talked about Lou Bryson's piece on the importance of beer glasses or the over-importance of beer glasses uh, and what made Lou's beer glass ideal in his mind. So we got a lot of feedback from people, but most of it was really people saying, you know what, I agree with them, and here's a picture of my favorite beer glass. So I love it. We have a whole collection of beer glasses that we're going to have to put up on the site so that everybody can have a gallery and you can go, ooh, I want one of those, and you can feed your ga your glass problem. 
I don't know about you. <laughs> I have a glass problem. When my wife and I first moved in together, I had something like 700 glasses and she made me oh pair. Yeah. She made me pair them down and I managed to get it down to about 50. And she's like, well, what about these? I'm like, Oh, well, those, no, those are, those are all the Trappist glasses. I have to have all those. <laughs> and those are for the wheat beers. And that's, those are my regular pints. Yeah. Uh, I think I maybe still have about 50 left, but every, every, well, once in a while, maybe like once a year, I end up taking about 50 out to Goodwill or someplace like that. Um, because when I really look at that whole collection sitting there, there are only about two or three of them I use with any regularity. Oh, I know. But it's still, it's funny. And every time I go to certain places, uh, my wife will give me a suspicious eye whenever I come home, looking at me going, Oh, yeah. Did you bring home a new beer? Glasses and t-shirts, man. It's like, I really, really appreciate people giving us those. And I really, really don't need any more of either. Yeah, but I still like getting them. Uh, so, but this brings us to the point. If you have a beer glass that is your favorite, the one that you always reach for, take a picture of it and send it to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or send it to us via Facebook or wherever you can find us. And we'll include it in the gallery of beer glasses that we're going to put on the website just for everybody to share. Now, that also brings us to the other piece where we need your, your feedback. So last year, Denny and I did our brew year's resolutions. And, you know, we kind of put it out there on the line. This is what we're going to try and do this year. And we had varying degrees of success, right? How much did you get, Denny? You know, right off the top of my head, I would say that I hit maybe 50% of my goals. Uh, but the biggest one was getting the chicken coop going. And, man, it is going. It's amazing. Even though uh, our temperature has been 17 degrees here, we are still getting a nice, consistent four eggs a day out of the chickens. So... Uh, that was that was a worthwhile resolution to follow through on. There you go. And then, you know, obviously, I have no clue how well I did. I'll have to go back and look. But what we want to do is we want to put you on the line this year. And so we'll have a couple of Brewers resolutions, but we really want to see what are you planning on doing. And the best way you can do that is you can either email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com with your Brewers resolution, or to make it more interesting, Go and use the audio recording software on your phone or on your computer to go record a quick 15-second snippet of saying, Hi, I'm Drew Beecham from Pasadena, California, and this is my brew year's resolution. Send that to us either in email. Wait, if everybody if everybody is Drew Beecham from Pasadena, California, how will we know who's who? Just find the most miserable one. That's me. Uh, <laughs> but okay. if you if you do this, Send it to us uh, either via email, send us a Dropbox link or something. Then we can make Denny do a lot of editing work over Christmas and force him to put it in the next episode. But I think we'll have something interesting out of what? it. And I just I just live for sitting in my guest room editing for hours at a time. I know you do. So, But there you go. That's <laughs> what we want you to do. Send us your brew year's resolution at podcastexperimentalbrew.com, and we'll include it in the show. And on the last little bit of feedback, uh, last – episode we were talking with van havoc from gigantic and van and i were talking a lot about our love of gin 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 and gin and tonics and peaking clubs and i got an email from uh, daniel tavist from sweden who said when i heard you say gin and tonic during the latest podcast i knew i had to tell you about and tonic from seattle they produce a tonic syrup which is great for gnts but also an adult soda if you increase the concentration just a little bit if you get the chance i suggest you try it and he sent me the, the link, which is antonic.co. And, of course, me being me, I went and I bought it. And in the last week, I've had a couple of G&Ts 
using that syrup and it rocks. So thank you, Daniel, for the tip. But good Lord, people, I can only buy so many things. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I'm going to definitely have to get some of that too. Uh, before I started uh, making beer as a hobby, uh, gin and tonics were my go-to drink. And I, I know how much a really, really good tonic can make a good gin and tonic. Yeah, and this this stuff is really nice because it's a concentrated syrup. So you just basically fill your glass with ice, put it in your lime juice, your bitters if you want, and then pour like a half ounce or three quarters of an ounce, depending on how strong you want it, into the glass. And then fill it with, uh, well, not fill it with gin. Add, a, add your shot of gin and then top it up <laughs> top it up with a club soda. I'm afraid if you fill the glass with gin, you're making an entirely different drink in a very short evening. But uh, it <laughs> I, works super I well. I remember the days when I would do that. Yeah, right. Okay, so uh, it's time for us to take a break, stroll over to the pub, and have ourselves a beer and talk about the beer life. We will be right back. Do you want to make the move to stainless steel, but you don't want to drop a grand or more? Chapman Brewing Equipment provides high-quality stainless steel mash tuns, kettles, and fermenters at an affordable price. Larry Medeiros, owner and operator of Bridgeview Beer and Wine Supply in Oregon, says, These are not only the best brewing pots made, they're also the best prices and will work on induction stoves as well. Ask for Chapman Brewing Equipment wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town somewhere in sweden because we go. said we were going international this time yeah it was a long we're flight ha- yeah right i know my arms are exhausted uh, i'm sorry i said that yeah okay so uh what are you drinking there today drew i, I know it's something special yeah so uh we referenced this earlier when we said that the next charity was going to be uh, something dog-related. So what I am drinking today is some of my last glasses of the last batch of Cookie Celebration Ale that I made. Uh, Cookie uh, is my favorite dog that I've ever had uh, and is a, a Chihuahua Corgi mix. And sadly, we lost her suddenly uh, to illness uh, really just the other day. So now it's a Cookie Memorial Ale. And what can I say? I love that little dog. She was a great dog, man. I am I am so glad that I had an opportunity to meet her. Uh, I think you and I are kind of a couple of the most maximum dog lovers I've ever met. So uh, it was a real thrill for me to meet her. Hopefully one of these days you can get up here and say hi to one of mine. So uh, everybody who's out there listening, uh, let's, uh, let's give a toast to Cookie and... Uh, 
you know, she's now uh, running free with the other dogs. So yeah, and if you go to if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see uh, a giant album of photos I put together of her. So uh, I highly recommend it because she was an adorable dog. She was adorable, and giant is an understatement. Let me tell you. And I am having my favorite Christmas Eve beer, Scaldus Noel. Uh, basically, my routine on Christmas Eve is uh, I get up early, I start cleaning, I start cooking, uh, shelling Dungeness crab, stuff like that. Uh, and in the afternoon, when I get done with all that and get done with my uh, Christmas present wrapping, I start up a fire in the wood stove, pour myself a glass of Scaldus Noel, sit down and sip it and uh, contemplate what a lucky guy I am to uh, have such a fine beer to drink and uh, such a great place to live and even, believe it or not, such a great partner in a podcast and book writing. Uh, all right, so, uh, Scaldus Noel, my Christmas Eve beer. Uh, I highly recommend it and it has that nice sparkly label with the cabin in the woods and snow and everything. Uh, it reminds me of home. Actually, yeah, it kind of does, you know. Well, and I'll tell you when you can find when you can find Scaldus in really good shape, and it's not uh, fusely. I actually really adore that beer. I've had a couple of uh, batches from them. I think that had that sort of high fusel character that's not pleasant. Uh, I'm I'm lucky in that I have never encountered that. So, uh, you know, to me, I just love there love to sit there and uh, sip that caramely flavor and uh, contemplate how great it tastes going down. There you go. So, on a not-so-much-fun note, but not terrible, we're back to sexism and brewing again, huh? Yeah, indeed. So, if you missed the online kerfluffle that happened the other week, uh, there's a craft brewery that's kind of crowdsourced called Mobcraft, and what they do is they allow users to submit ideas for beers and names and everything else, and those automatically get... uh, pushed up into the system to be voted on and pre-ordered by various individuals. And the ones that win get brewed. So this being the internet, you can imagine what happens. And a couple of weeks ago, they had a beer that appeared on their site as for voting and for sale, uh, that involved the use of dates and grapes. And I don't like where this is going. Yeah. And the uh, brewer who created the idea decided that the ever clever name was, or and decided on the ever clever name of date grape. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how how could anybody think that calling anything date grape beer would be a good idea? I don't know. I mean, to me, it's a sort of a fifth grade joke, but whatever. Uh, now. <laughs> Obviously, this this is not anything new. We've talked about sort of casual sexism in the beer industry and why we think it's bad for the both the industry at large and our hobby. But what was really great to see was actually the fairly swift and sort of uh, right-on-the-money uh, response from Mobcraft itself, where I think, what was it, within a day? Yeah, that's what I think it was. Yeah, so within a day... They put up a blog explaining exactly what had happened and not trying to excuse how it happened, just explaining exactly what happened. Uh, pulled that beer from their site as a potential beer and then topped it all off with the idea of taking a portion of their proceeds from 
one particular Saturday, which was December 10th, when the, all this stuff was kind of going on, and donating those to a local rape uh, crisis center. So, in comparison to... I mean, that to me, man, that is, like, totally cool. Uh, it's like instantly saying, oh, geez, we screwed up, and to show you how much we realize we screwed up, here's what we're going to do to try and fix it. Yeah, and, I mean, to me, I thought it was it was straightforward, it was swift, and it was unequivocal and unapologetic in terms of just going, nope, this is what we're going to do to make it right. So that was a rather refreshing thing, and I hope that more breweries that find themselves in these sorts of situations, because, I mean, let's face it, it, you know, Mobcraft's kind of unique in the fact that their names were uh, sourced, but sometimes an idea that sounds good at, you know, in the middle of the brewery while you're having a couple of pints suddenly hits the street and turns out to not be so well-received. Uh, so I'm just happy yeah. to see if more people use this as a model of how to respond. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope that uh, eventually we'll get to the point where responses aren't necessary because people will realize that that kind of name is unacceptable. Yeah, well, I, to me, it's just politeness. And I know that's not always a popular thing. So whatever. Yeah, right, right. And we'll include we'll include on the on the, the podcast notes the link to the original article that kind of drew everybody's attention to this to Mobcraft's response, and to actually another interesting take from another industry person about one of their beers that was uh, they are now kind of realizing, hmm, that was not a great idea. Right, right. So, and then there's like some good beer news in politics, right? Yeah, in politics of all places, in the most divisive uh, realm that you can get into, Homebrew has made it to the highest courts of the land, or sorry, has made it to the highest halls of the land. And... What happened was that the Brewers Association, for those of you who don't know, actually has a professional lobbying arm. And the lobbying arm focuses on craft beer-related issues, so things like uh, different tax tax breaks, uh, different distribution laws, uh, different things just to kind of make the life of craft brewers a lot easier and better. But the AHA, who is part of the darter organization of the BA, also has a presence on the Hill from time to time. Uh, working to do some various things in terms of homebrew. I know there are a couple that have been in the works for several years, including one that, if it actually happens, will make everybody super excited. Um, so what had happened was that uh, Katie Marizek, who is the actual uh, Brewers Association's federal affairs manager, goes around to various uh, offices in the Capitol and talks to the Congress critters uh, staff, both in the House and in the Senate, and, of course, to both parties, because that's how you get bills actually passed. And as she was wandering around, she kept being told by different staffers, oh, you know, I brew, uh, I brew at home. And that spun off into an idea of, between her and Gary Glass to have an actual Hill Staff, to, to host the first ever Hill Staff homebrew contest. And so they had 25 people sign up, and they actually ended up uh, just like you would think. Uh, with these sorts of things, 14 beers showed up to the competition uh, at the Three Stars Tap Room, and eight national and uh, local beer judges uh, evaluated them. They were helped along by John Moorhead, who now runs the National Homebrew Com- Competition, took over for Janice this year. And he said that uh, one guy had been brewing for 20 years, and another told us that this is his very first competition. And they, uh, they, <laughs> they also said the quality of the beer varied, which... Anybody surprised by that? <laughs> Has not been around homebrew for a while. And uh, it finally came down to a vote on two beers as to who would be the winner, one of which was a, a multi-beer de guard created by Noah Oppenheim, 
who works for uh, Rep- Representative Jared Huffman from California, and a double IPA brewed by Chris Anderson, who's a legislative assistant for Senator Bill Casty from Louisiana. And at the end of the day, the end of the votes, the trio of judges uh, voting on the best of beers voted on Tap Dancing Fezziwig, the big, pleasantly bitter double IPA dry hopped with Apollo and Columbus from Chris Anderson. So, uh, I think one of the best quotes that came out of the whole article was actually in the title of the piece in the Washington Post that covered this. Yes, homebrewing got covered in the Washington Post. Uh, and the title, cool. yeah, the title says, Politics is Divisive, Beer is Not. <laughs> so, I think this is kind of cool, and they're going to attempt to bring it around again year after year, and the trophy that they gave away that they are hoping will become like a rotating trophy is really nifty because it's basically a little pedestal with a little recreation of the bill from Schoolhouse Rock, for those of you who remember the 70s and the 80s, Schoolhouse Rock, oh, yeah. and the button instead of saying bill on it says beer. So good sense of humor and glad to see some sort of unifying activity happening in the political sphere. Very cool, very cool. So uh, before we get out of here, uh, you might have noticed that my voice is a little stranger than it usually is, and uh, I'm going to blame it on St. Louis. I was in uh, St. Louis last weekend with the St. Louis Brews Homebrew Club for their Happy Holidays Homebrew Competition. Uh, big shout out to the club. Bunch of great, great guys that I had the pleasure of hanging with. Uh, special shout out to my uh, chauffeur for the weekend, Tim Cochran. Had a great time, even ended up doing some judging, which I haven't done for years, and uh, then uh, gave a silly little speech uh, after their uh, their evening banquet. Uh, like I said, I had a great time, great bunch of guys, uh, an amazingly well-run, pretty large competition, just under 600 entries. Uh, shout out to their club president, Mike Walter, who also uh, runs the competition, too, and it was one of the smoothest large competitions I've ever had the pleasure of uh, being involved with. Uh, I wish my club could do something like that. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, so, uh, but of course, uh, I, I came home, walked in the door, and uh, within ten minutes, I was uh, I was sick with a cold, flu kind of thing. So, I'm not blaming you guys. I'll just say it was 17 degrees when I was there. Uh, but, and, well, uh, and the airport. I, yeah, right. That's it, man. It's like, you know, uh, two flights each way. But it was a great, great time. It was worth the suffering I've been through since. So, thank you for inviting me. And they tell me there are eight different homebrew clubs in the St. Louis area. So if you live around there and uh, you aren't a member of a club yet, you should be. They all get together and collaborate on different competitions that each club runs. Very cool system. And uh, one one more time, thank you to St. Louis Brews. Well, so now let me ask, what what did you end up uh, judging? I ended up judging European Amber Lagers. Uh, Probably five or six Martins, I think a Vienna lager or two, and a really, really outstanding Doppelbach to finish with. Mm. Uh, so after after that, in the morning, I was ready for a nap. <laughs> well, and then, of course, the Denny show happening later that day. So 
not too bad. Glad that you got to go out there and glad that you got to go wave the banner of homebrew support for everybody. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, uh, a great town. Uh, believe me, there's a lot more to St. Louis than Budweiser. Amen. All right. <laughs> Amen. I think it's time to get out of here and go finish up a couple beers and go talk some books. All righty. We're going to take a quick break and head over to the library and we'll be right back. We've finished our beers and we've moved over to the library. We've settled into our cozy chairs by the fireplace here. And we're going to be talking about uh, an article written by Zymergy editor Dave Carpenter about five beer cliches we need to stop using. And let me tell you, when I saw this article, I jumped for joy. <laughs> Dave is my guy. Yeah, so, so, Drew, why don't you run down that list real quick? Yeah, so Dave includes the terms. Brewmaster, because, hey, that's a actual specific type title, so don't use it in that way. You're a brewer. Uh, farmhouse, uh, his argument is that if you're not on a farmhouse, why are you calling it a farmhouse? Uh, Epic, uh, because he's like, look, you know, unless you work for Epic Brewing Company, your beers aren't epic. And then... Uh, Let me just say that to go along with that, I wish he would have included Awesome. Yeah, I know, but I like awesome. Even though, even though the word has completely the Grand Canyon is awesome. A beer yeah. is not awesome. There you go. All right, and then of course okay. he also includes our favorite one, which is the word balanced, as we torture every <laughs> yes, yes, as we torture every brewer out there. And then uh, the last one is uh, the word that Denny and I I know uh, go back and forth on the word crushable. That's just stupid. I know, but sometimes it's fun to be stupid. <laughs> What does crushable mean? It means that you can down a glass of that in no time. And yeah, and you're crushing the can. You know, it's like that frat boy image. Yeah, the image I get for crushable is like, you know, something like out of Animal House where you, you suck down a beer and crush the can against your head. Yeah. Uh, it just, to me, in terms of a of a way to describe a beer, it just makes no sense whatsoever. But... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm an old guy who is an English major. Yeah, well, and I'm a young guy who's a pain in the butt. So I actually still <laughs> like the term crushable just for that fact that every once in a while, I mean, let's face it, this is beer. Every once in a while, you are going to kind of get into an animal housey type of mode. At least I think so. But uh, I would love to know what people think because there would be a couple of other terms in here that I would love to you know throw to the wolves. You know, uh, one of them being, I, gr I agree about the farmhouse thing. I totally get what he's going for. Uh, rustic. Rustic's another yeah. one you hear all the time. And also, I would really just love to force people to be more precise and get away from just saying hoppy. You know, man, that you read my mind. That is exactly what I was going to say. Uh, hoppy means so much that it means nothing. Mm -hmm. But I mean, this is also the problem. It's like, I mean, look, we're people who are brewing beers. We're not necessarily people who are poets. Uh, or marketers. And so, yeah, it's a little hard, but I would say I, and everybody who's listened to this podcast knows how I feel about the word balance. 
I it has its place, but a lot of times it's a crutch word, and people use a, use a number of these words as kind of crutches instead of kind of really describing what it is that they mean. Right. Well, and that's my problem with crushable. Yeah, I know. You know? I I have meaning for that word. So <laughs> sure you do. But but like juicy, I mean which I finally managed to come up with a meaning for somewhat. I I don't know what crushable means. I mean, I I know what you want it to mean. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that word is appropriate to describe what you're trying to say. I don't know. It's it's like you hear people talking about, hey, I can really house a burrito. You know, it is a thing. <laughs> yeah, right. well, there you go. So here's the real quick shout out. Do you have a term that you think should be alighted from Brewer's vocabulary? Do you want to defend any of these terms? Do you want to tell us that we're wrong and hateful people for trying to uh, force your language in different directions? You know how to get a hold of us. Do you want to tell me that uh, I'm just an old curmudgeon who is uh, totally out of touch with the real world? I tell you that every day. Uh, but if you want to tell yeah, us well, all this stuff, just go to podcastandexperimentalbrew.com or send us a message on Facebook. But in the meanwhile, don't forget, totally make a crushable, epic farmhouse ale that you can that's super balanced between the, the Brett and the rustic characters. Because you're a brewmaster. I think I think you got just about everything in there. <laughs> All righty. Enough of this silliness. It is time now to go to the lounge and uh, listen to our interview with uh, Breakside Brewing founder, and I'm not going to say brewmaster, Ben Edmonds. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. We've made our way to the lounge, and we're about to uh, sit down with a couple more beers in hand, which we advise you to do also, unless you're driving, of course, and uh, listen to this interview with Ben Edmonds from Breakside Brewing, uh, part of our Portland trip that we did a couple months ago. We have one more coming up next time with uh, an interview with Chuck Macaluso, a home brewer and member of the Oregon Brew Crew with some significant achievements to his, uh, his name. But uh, we showed up at Breakside and uh, got together with Ben. He showed us around the brewery, showed us around the barrel room, poured us a huge number of samples of their delicious beers, and uh, we sat down to talk. So, so what was what was your big impression of Breakside? Uh, I thought it was pretty damn awesome. But now, of course, the main thing I remember, and yes, I did just use the awesome word. Uh, my main memory, of course, other than having all those beers and having a great conversation, was of Paco the Brewdog. And Paco was a... <laughs> yes, Paco was amazing. Yeah, Paco kept following us around and sitting with us and, and just having a great time, paying attention to all the funny furry people with recorders in front of their faces. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, without further ado, 
Let's uh, take a listen to Ben Edmonds from Breakside Brewing, uh, along with uh, Drew, me, and our good buddy, Larry Clouser. This is Denny, and we're sitting here at the Breakside Brewery. Drew is here. Ooh. Larry is back again. Oh. <laughs> and we have Ben Edmonds with us. How are you today, Ben? I'm good. It's a pleasure to have you guys here today. Uh, it's our pleasure, believe me, man, because these beers are just freaking delicious. Thank you so much. And also, you are... By far away, the quietest brewery that we've been at. <laughs> you can look at the blackberry nice bramble out too, here yeah, and really, really admire uh, all all the green, the shades of green of Oregon. It's really. true. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm, I'm from LA. I'm not used to green. It's right, strange right. to me. So why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, my background is uh, that. Well, first of all, I've been the brewmaster at Breakside now for uh, the last six and a half years. Uh, been with the company since we opened, uh, and actually before we opened. But before that, I briefly was uh, one of the brewers over at Upright Brewing. Uh, worked with Alex Ganoom over there. Uh, that was my first kind of post-Siebel uh, gig. <laughs> and before that, working back in time, uh, I was at Siebel. Uh, I was one of those kind of generation of folks, I think, who was a home brewer who wanted to turn my hobby into a profession, um, which you know I think a number of people did. And so I went to brewing school in 2008 and uh, came back to Portland after that. I moved to Portland kind of on a lark uh, and with the eye to getting into the beer scene. I was a big home brewer in Colorado at the time, um, but had never worked in the beer industry. I'd given a number of things, I thought the best route was to go and get an education, come back, see if I could get a job. and. Uh, one thing led to another, and here we are today at Breakside. <laughs> so how long did you homebrew? Oh gosh, from about 2004 on, so okay. probably five years before I was before I went to Siebel. Yeah. Do you still homebrew at all? I don't. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm one of the lucky folks in the industry who you know has a lot of uh, creative control over what comes out of this brewery, and um, I don't. Yeah, so I, I I feel like I homebrew in three-barrel batches at this point, you know. <laughs> nice. Well, I was going to say, yeah, it's not three-barrel batches on the brewery that we just saw. No, that's at the pub brewery, right? Yeah, and that's, uh, so these are, yeah, some, sometimes, this is the scaled-up version here where we're on the 30-barrel system. Yeah. And, and where's the three-barrel version? That's in our original brew pub. That's uh, up at Northeast Deacon in 8th, so about uh, 20 minutes from where we're sitting right now. Cool. And how often do you get to brew there? I personally brew there probably once a month or once every six weeks. We do still do about 350 barrels a year on that system. I think a lot of uh, breweries of our size would probably not use that system as much mm -hmm. as we do, but uh, we're brewing on there, you know, figure it's three barrels, 100 barrels, it's 100 brews a year, brewing there two times a week, two to three times a week. Wow. That's remarkable. That alt that you're having right now, Denny, was built brewed on that system. Really? Yeah. And this is a very, very nice alt, man. The malt character is just right. outstanding. So now, was that particular glass brewed on that system, or was that the recipe developed on that system? Uh, the, that, that glass that was of beer was brewed on that system. Yeah, so we don't um, cross-brew at all. So beers that are brewed here are not brewed at on the Deacon system and vice versa. We don't try and flavor match. If we decide we're going to scale something up, we'll scale it up. But you know, if you're drinking, we don't brew breaks at IPA on the little system. We don't brew Wanderlust in the little system. And certain beers, especially the malt forward beers, I think really benefit from being brewed on a more direct fire system. The malt mm -hmm. flavor really comes through nicely. Uh, and, Certainly and, does. Yeah, things like the ESB, the uh, smoke porter, the alt. Um, plus, also, there's only so many people who want to drink 
uh, smoke porter, and so right. it makes more sense to make it a six barrel batch than it does a thirty barrel batch. Size. Well, and, I, and I'll say that even applies down to the alt level mm-hmm. because I know while we were sitting here, be, oh, what beer should we have? While well, we're sitting down here and talking, we have, by the way, a nice flight of beers in front of us. Um, Denny was like, oh no no, I just want little beers, and he said, I want the alt. Yeah, the alt. So the alt is definitely in Denny's uh, wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. definitely so here. Um, all right, so uh, favorite question, just to get everything loose now that we've talked a little bit about mm-hmm. What's your favorite curse word? <laughs> uh, I like to think of myself as someone who doesn't swear a lot, but we all I do. think that if you if you read the transcripts of what I said, I would probably I probably do say f- more than I should. Okay, well, you're with 90% of the yeah. brewers we've talked to. For yeah. the record, I've never heard him swear, though. Yeah, well, I th- that's a, that shows an even temperament. I'm, tell, I'm told, though, that uh, one of my giveaways is that if I say the word dope, that's apparently an indicator that I really like something, which I know that I say <laughs> that sometimes, but I didn't realize. It was actually Mike Hunsaker, the head brewer at Fatheads, who pointed that out. He's like, you know that you really like something when you say, when your response is dope and not just like, oh, nice or good or cool or something like that. <laughs> is, there, is there a similar word that is the opposite of that, like where you're like, Mm. Uh, I don't know if I, I maybe uh, hopefully I keep that one a little bit closer to, to the chest. You're holding that no one closer to the vest. Nobody's identified it yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah been called out. What, what do they call that in uh, in poker? A tell. A tell. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, hopefully my tell is not uh, isn't that obvious. All right. So now, when uh, did you first discover good beer? Uh, probably around 2001, 2000. So my I was going to school on the East Coast and. My friends and I were really interested in um, kind of like regional, seasonable, seasonal, sustainable foods and like that movement. We were reading, you know, uh, articles and books by Alice Waters and reading about the slow foods movement in Italy. And in Connecticut, circa 2000, there was nothing. There was no way to eat that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, gardening, home gardening in the winter in Connecticut was not really <laughs> feasible, um, at least without a greenhouse. And so... We were kind of, uh, you know, we would always try and seek those types of food experiences out. And oftentimes that meant when we were traveling through New England, uh, you know, to go hiking in the Green Mountains, the White Mountains, or out to uh, Boston or something. We'd seek out restaurants and food that, you know, in some way rang of, like, localism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Michael and Jane Stern books, Road Food. And that was a big guide for us, just trying to understand communities through food, even if in this very superficial way of just going to like a place that was kind of owned locally and was serving food that was representative of that region. And Look, I, I, I will tell you right now, I, I don't think I really know an area until I've had their food. Right. It's one of the most exciting ways to discover a place, right? Yeah. And to differentiate places from each other and to sort of feel like you've connected with it. And one of the few institutions I found along the East Coast in that era that actually kind of pointed toward that kind of food and uh, culture experience were brew pubs. Mm-hmm. And because even if the food was not great, even though it was standard pub grub, you knew the beer was being made on site, you knew that it was kind of a local institution, there was something handcrafted about it. And so it's actually that way that I started drinking craft beer. Um, it's more an interest in kind of local foods, seasonal foods, handcrafted foods in general. and. Uh, mm-hmm. From there, the kind of bug bit me, and it went went on. So I remember it'd probably be at one of the number of a number of brew pubs 
on the East Coast, mm-hmm. uh, which today I, you know, I try not to go back to them because I worry <laughs> that uh, I'd find the Ringwood yeast would not really suit my palate uh, yeah. these days. But that, that's not all of them, but yeah, yeah, I know you're a number of them. Um, with all due respect to some East Coast brew pubs. Uh, but yeah, so in my mind, those are some of the beers that, that stood out. Well, and see, for me, like, I, I know one of my first discoveries for good beer was uh, Cambridge Brewing Company mm-hmm. uh, in Cambridge because that was, I went to MIT and that was right around the corner. Will is still there. Will is still kicking. Will's great brewer, world class brewer, yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, I remember going there early on, and the reason that, like, I didn't have any of the high motivations that you do or that you did about trying to drink more locally or trying to drink more this. I, I went there because, hey, I like the taste of that and they're right around the corner for me and I like those people. Yeah. Which to the to this day actually still plays out in a lot of my decisions is like, I will go frequent places that may not necessarily have the best beer, but they have the best beer people. Sure, I mean, I don't think, you, I think it's very hard uh, other than maybe in a judging setting to divorce the beer that you're drinking from the experience and context that you're drinking it in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, context is huge. It's like, how many of us had uh, Coronas or something like that where we've been on the beach and we've just been kicking back and it's a really damn good beer at that point, right? I mean, we might have, you know, we could have the best beer in the world here and the experience of going to an industrial park and drinking beer is never going to be able to match uh, you know, that of sitting in this kind of bucolic, you know, mountainside chalet or something or villa, you know, and I, I think that's just uh, part of the part of the package. So I accept that. That's, you know, it bums me out a little bit. I wish people valued industrial parks more. Well, but to that point, like, I, I wonder, you know, so like go to the Abbey at Orval. Yeah. Right. You know, you go to the Abbey itself and it's this beautiful picturesque thing in the middle of this beautiful green valley kind of half fallen down it feels like and then you get to the end at the very end of the valley and you can have the beer both the beers there at the valley and not only is it like the fact that you have both the beers but like you can have one of the beers yeah yeah and it's like how, how much does that add to the to the experience oh it's just there and isn't that wonderful so locality is the thing but hey let's face it good beer is a good beer we just gotta get to it yeah, I mean, I tend to take things from um, a, I guess you would call it like a, uh, if, if we want to get like in, into cultural theory here early in the discussion while we're still uh, haven't had too many beers, like <laughs> kind of a, like a Benjaminian kind of uh, way of thinking about it, which is that, uh, you know, his famous essay, uh, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, talks about how the aura of, you know, a piece of art of seeing it in place and that... Uh, cinema basically destroys the aura because it makes it mass uh, accessible to the masses and the idea of like going to Orval and having mm-hmm. the beer in that place of course that's just a f- another form of this aura that exactly. you know we impart that we impart a value to and well in that essay he kind of laments the loss of the aura in the age of cinema at the same time he embraces it as a way to provide a huge access to these commodities to uh, people mm-hmm. and I think that's a really interesting thing about beer is that like you as a brewer, I like to play on both ends of it. I like to play on the experience side and the aura of coming to Breakside. And there's a lot of things we try and do when we have people walk in the door here in terms of the tours we give or the way we set up the barrel room or the type, you know, the freshness of the hoppy beers on tap, things like that, the number of bottles that we have available to try and make that pilgrimage type experience worthwhile. And at the same time, care very much about the way that the beer sits on a Safeway shelf too. Mm-hmm. Right. See, and yeah, 
I don't know. I mean, for me at least, uh, where I'm at as a beer drinker and everything else, like I've had a lot of beer that I can have on draft at my nice little local pub, and I have a wonderful local pub next to me that I love to death. Thank baby Jesus, I have them near me. <laughs> I like seriously, they're a nine block walk away from me. It this is in is, LA. Yeah, this Which, is in LA. What is it? Uh, Lucky Baldwin's Trapeze. Okay. Uh, great place, great place. Yeah, it it's fantastic. <laughs> I love uh, LA. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a weirdo, but I love LA. So. <laughs> Uh, Parts. I, I I love LA too, but uh, and I won't get into my big long rant about it on the podcast. Here, yeah. But I will say it. LA, unlike a lot of cities, does not reward passive participation. LA as a city rewards active participation. Sure. Yeah. If you want something, LA has it. You just have to go out and find it. And if you if you're not willing to activate yourself in terms of finding it, then yeah, you'll have a bad LA experience. But regardless. Lucky Baldwin's, uh, all three of the locations that they have, including the Trapeze, which is nine blocks away from my house, is Wunderbar. And, but I will find that even, even having the, the opportunity to go have a beer at my nice little local pub where they take care of the beer and everything's wonderful, it does have a certain disromanticism compared to going even to an industrial park but going and being in the same vicinity as where something is created Absolutely. and in the same vicinity as the people who are there. I mean, you go into a lot of craft breweries, uh, even ones with tasting rooms where they may have a staff, you're still going to be that much closer to the whole nature of the experience and the, and the creation that even my bad little scientific brain that wants to disabuse romanticism at its core yeah, we'll say, no, no, there is a reason that I want to go to the damn place it was created to go have it. Because I think at that point in time, if nothing else, or that, sorry, that point in space time, the people there will take care of that product beyond anything else that I want. I mean, who knows by the time it gets to my, to my local woods, what's been done to it. Yeah. Well, with that said, is a scenic brewery in the countryside in the future of Brigside then? <laughs> uh, I don't think, I don't know, in the countryside. I feel feel like we already asked people to a lot to drive down to Milwaukee, you know. We have a oh, lot no, of, it's only a few minutes. But you know what happens. Yeah. So the further you get away from the uh, draw of southeast Portland, it gets harder to keep your hipster staff. So nope. it's, uh, we have to... We have to Cow out of them in some ways, right? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, just want to make sure. That I, there is in Portland apparently a different sensation of the word Milwaukee than what you would get around the rest of the country. Yes, yeah. yes, totally different meaning. It's not quite spelled the same. Correct. A couple um, of words different. It's yeah. an I, um, no E, no double E. No double E. Yeah, Denny and I were looking at the map today as we were driving around and like. Hey, that's spelled wrong. That's weird. Because we're different. I, I knew. <laughs> we're, we're different, that's why. I think you guys might be high on your own product. But anyway, um, yeah, no, like literally, like, that's wrong. Uh, so, but, yeah, so uh, this area, is this area of Milwaukee then? Yes. Uh, right. Yeah, it's the first suburb south of Portland. Yeah. All right, so we're south of Portland, and how far outside of Portland are we? Oh, about 15 minutes from the center yeah. of downtown. Yeah. From the center of downtown. So city limits? Within like a few minutes, depending on traffic, yeah. but downtown's probably 15 minutes. <laughs> with, with that said, it's it's actually comical what, is he, what he said is because people who, Portland has a lot of people who don't necessarily leave Portland proper, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So when you when you talk about Milwaukee, they 
you they they act like you're talking about going to California or something. I mean, to them, it's wow. far away. And truly, in all honesty, and that's probably me because there's a lot to do in Portland. And Portland has a lot to offer. Mm. But in all honesty, we're just a few minutes right outside the city limit out here. Yeah, my problem is that I live in LA, right? right. So no, it's a, and it's then a then sense of geography that doesn't really work for anyone else. <laughs> I mean, there's a we, but I swear, I mean, for the you know we. When I used to, I used to live in North Portland, about two miles from our original brew pub. I moved up there actually so that I could bike into work very easily, and it was great. Between my house and the brewery, our brew pub that is, mm -hmm. I would pass three other breweries, mm -hmm. as well as a number of excellent beard bars. And it's crazy, and some totally fine average bars that have great beer selections mm -hmm. too, or at least a wide beer selection. And that's the thing that's crazy about Portland is you have people who like, say, oh yeah, you guys are so far away, and your place is a mile and a half away because they have so many other choices right, right around them. It really that, does. That was one of the first comments Drew made as we were driving around town today. Is, People in Portland really like to drink, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also it's just like looking around like, I, you guys are so compact. I'm like, I drive literally 60 miles to work every day, so. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, so moving away from the lifestyle choices and poor lifestyle choices that some of us may have made, um, so, for the brewery, omitting the word balance, or words thereof in their shape, or translated from other foreign languages to that shape. I cheated earlier. He did cheat. Um, omitting the word balance, describe your brewing philosophy. I think that if you take two sips of a beer and don't want to crush the entire pint, then the beer wasn't worth making. <laughs> That's actually uh, a good perspective. That, that is actually. a great answer. And I don't think that it, it I think that that can be, a, that is not a treatise on styles. I think you can make, I don't actually, I'm not endorsing crushing, you know, pints of barrel-aged barley wines, right. for example, but the spirit of that can be applied to a 12% barrel-aged barley wine. Well, I mean, I think it gets to some of the other things we've talk, talked about in the past in the podcast. It's... If the beer in front of you is not the sort of thing that you are willing to keep lifting to your lips, there's a problem with it. Yeah, yeah. and you can do that. I mean, it can be just out of pure enjoyment. It could be, I mean, a lot of times I find myself doing that like, like your IPA. I mean, it's like basically a straight-ahead Northwest IPA, but well, it, and it's, 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 it's intriguing. You know, when I drink it, it, it stimulates me to think about what I'm actually tasting mm -hmm. in it, well, you know? And, the, and that IPA is old school in the sense it's catty, it's got some crystal to it, it's got yeah, uh, some pininess to it. It's not the, any sort of new fingerly IPA, and it is in that sort of old-school abrasive American IPA type idea. Yeah, and it's and it's just perfectly made, you know? That's the thing. Well, you guys bring up a very good point, in my opinion, though, and I know that you've actually talked about this, Ben, on, on whether it be just locally here or on publications. The definition of IPA today is so different from what IPA was five years ago, mm -hmm. ten years ago. And now we can even look at what IPA is in the last three months, even. I mean, we've seen this whole Northeast-style IPAs, and even on the West Coast, which are not, we're not the Northeast, we're seeing this influence of IPAs that have that haze, that have the cloudiness, that have these flavors to it. Mm -hmm. And some people would argue, are those IPAs? Should they be classified in a totally different beer style? I mean, IPA, 
I don't know of any other beer style who has, that has really changed its its profile as much as IPA in the last. Well, well I mean, it's 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 expanded the definition. I mean, you look at like like uh, GABF or BJCP guidelines now, and there's like you know like fourteen different kinds of IPA <laughs> there. You know. Well, I was gonna say my problem is I think the the three letter term IPA has become surrendered to marketeers in terms of like. And, and to the consumers, like consumers just basically will see IPA and they'll say, this is something hoppy, right? I don't think even outside the most educated consumers that we have in the market, they don't give a wit's ass distinction between a Northwest IPA, a New England, a New England IPA, a West Coast IPA, an East Coast IPA. To them, they just see IPA, and what they think is this means something bitter. They know that this is something that they want because they want that hoppy bitterness. Um, and brewers have followed straight into it because, I mean, look, I mean, I mean uh, for Breakside, like your IPAs, like how much of that is your sales? It's a good bit. I mean, and, you know, it's not just the two core IPAs we make, Breakside IP and Wanderlust. It's the number of other variants that we do on over the course of the year that get added on and the reality is those beers sell i mean i agree with you drew i think that like basically to me there's when you're talking about ip you're talking about you're using ip in one of two ways if you're talking about it kind of uh connotatively right it's this it is a style that can be well defined or at least as well defined uh you know as a west coast american ipa but also i think that drew's right that like it's basically a term that's been co-opted or mythologized into this meaning of just like tasty craft beer yeah you know? and, and tasty bitter beer and it is what it is and you know i mean look guys i mean i've ranted long and hard on the podcast in the past about like can we get can we please develop more beers of different styles but i mean look breweries like breakside and, and every place else that we've been these are businesses. They have to get beer across the door. They have to get somebody to pay for it. Let's, and let's not discount the fact that there are some of us who like IPAs. Well, hey, look, <laughs> I like IPA too. I'm not, I'm, I'm not removing myself from that category. I'm just saying that's like, I'm also the guy who likes Miles. I like Saison's and I like, you know, I, I like the occasional alt. I like, I mean, I like some other but things. But I think the thing is there in a lot of these instances, there are certain styles that do just fine, you know, and like it varies a little bit regionally, but in, at this point in time, hops have won. Mm-hmm. You know, hops are the signature ingredient of American craft beer at this point. And, you know, there's only so much Saison, no matter how well made they, that Saison is, that's going to sell right. in the current marketplace. That's because people are stupid. <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> it might be because of that. It always also just because people really like hop flavor. Yeah. You know, and that's the same. It's like, you, no, I remember reading an article no, 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 about I'm, 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 Boston I'm, I'm, beer a couple years ago about, you know, Jim Cook was lamenting why uh, Boston beer's sales were flagging a little bit. And, you know. Well, yeah, he, he, he didn't want to release the Rebel right. IPA series. And but you know what? Like, if, if, if American craft beer if, had been hung its hat on multi European styles, then, you know what? Like, Sam at Boston beer would still be, mm-hmm. like, have all the cachet. In reality, it's like they chose the ingredient to focus on that did not become the flavor of the right. you know, generation. And a place like Sierra Nevada did. And they weren't looking into a crystal ball thinking, oh, hops are the next big thing. They got lucky, I think. You oh, know? I agree. And yeah. that just happened to be the way the flavors went. So um, 
I have heard that you are like way into water. Is that true? Uh, you mean like for brewing water? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Not necessarily like, swimming. <laughs> I love the drink. Water is awesome. Good for hydration. <laughs> uh, I like to bathe in it. Yeah. I do. I, I do. Uh, I do take brewing water very, uh, very seriously. How yes. did How did you decide to take it so seriously? You know, I think it was talking to brewers in Europe about uh, how they believe that, like. They didn't. They felt that a lot of their character came from water, mm -hmm. and their ability to have a particular aspect of their beer was water derived. Um, and that I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it was just the his, looking at the history of beer and list, looking at the like wide range of world styles and the sources of those and the water sources of those. It just kind of clicked to me. I mean, I never. I always assumed that water is as, as important an ingredient in beer as it's ninety percent of it. You know? yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's the same thing. It's like if you're going to make, if you say you want to make a, a, uh, a West Coast IPA in the style of, say, Blind Pig or Pliny the Elder, you know, these kind of iconic ones. Like, you know, if you're not using the same malts and the same hops and the same yeast and the same water profile that we're being used in, you know, by Vinich Lerzo or Tommy Arthur or Matt Reynoldson, you're going to... You're stacking the deck against yourself if you're trying to recreate those flavors. And I just, I don't believe that you can divorce flavor from process. Like, every element of process impacts flavor. And so, if you're trying to be imitative, you know, and mimic, uh, like, a different characteristic, you have to try and mimic everything in process. Now, that doesn't mean that you should just copycat things. Sure. But it does mean that, like, as a brewer, you should do your due diligence and figure out you know, what parts of process are the most essential to recreating those flavors. And I think water is, one, I think it's absolutely essential, and two, I think it's not that hard a thing to recreate with a little bit of knowledge of water chemistry. Right. Okay. So can you, uh, given that I don't think a lot of people are going to be super obsessed about it. I know, do people do, get, their eyes glaze over the minute you start talking about mash right. pH, right? So do, do, do you have a couple of simple rules that you look for? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think for us generally, Going back to this kind of concept of chuggability and drinkability in beer, I mean, I think that uh, that sulfate, a slight, even if you don't like heavy burtonization, a slight sulfate uh, heavy beer is always going to create a beer that's a little bit more dry, a little bit more drinkable. Even if you're not doing any water calculations, you have moderately decent drinking water, and you use two parts gypsum to every one part calcium chloride that you add to your brewing water, you're going to end up with a better more drinkable dry beer, and I think that's pretty straightforward. I think that also uh, having some sense of how much calcium you're putting in there for overall yeast health is really essential. So getting a water report and knowing how much calcium you're adding uh, through whatever method, if you're a home brewer or professional brewer, uh, being able to at least have some gauge on how much calcium you have in, in your water. Those are my two things. Yeah. And do you like pretty much aim for the same mash pH on all your beers? No, we range. I think that generally uh, for our hoppy beers, we target around five. We target five point three. Uh, for session beers, we go a little bit higher and kind of favor this the East Coast method, I guess you might call it at this mm -hmm. point of like going a little bit more to like five five. Those beers, though, we still burtonize a little bit. You know, we still do have a little bit more uh, heavier sulfate. Um, you know, like. If someone's really interested in tasting like totally just two beers that I think kind of exemplify like different water profiles that are manipulated water profiles, go and buy a Widmer beer. I mean, Widmer is very open about this. They really like chloride heavy beers. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of those Widmer beers are, and I shouldn't say every last one because I can't speak to their entire portfolio, <laughs> but they have a tendency in their beers uh, 
to use to go heavier chloride and to get that rounder, softer, uh, more malt forward, heavier malt forward mouthfeel. Drink a breakside beer side by side of it, and I think you'll see most of the time that it's going to come off a little bit drier and snappier. And that's not bitterness. It's not finishing gravity. Right. It's uh, drier. It's, it's, it's yeah. water. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, I mean, like the, the number of beers I've had, and I'm, I'm noticing with some of the uh, the saisons. So Denny is sitting over there with a giant pile of beers in front of him, and he's mostly been focusing on the IPA. And I have been sitting here, uh, thanks to your generosity, with a couple of nice 750s of uh, various farmhouse beers. And one of the things I am noticing is that uh, these do finish with a very strong mineral character. Yeah, I mean, I think in Cezanne in particular, we'll go very high Mm -hmm. on the, not only the skewing the ratio of sulfate to chloride, but we like minerality. I mean, we're looking at 250, 300 ppm of calcium in those types of beers, really high levels of... Uh, of carbon as well. We use a good bit of chalk in particular. Mm-hmm. We do that in the alt as well. I mean, mm-hmm. just kind of imitating um, classic gonna, water profiles. Well, I was going to say the, the the alt definitely carries forward some of that same the same morality, yeah. but uh, but not to the to the same extent where like uh, I think one of these ones that has the uh, I think was it the citra and a couple other things. That's the well. It's probably the carte blanche there. Yeah. Yeah, the carte blanche. I think this is the last one. And yeah, I mean that that ends with a big sort of like punch of minerality so yeah. you get like dry yeah yeah and I, I like that i mean i can see some people that maybe not sitting their palate as much but like for me that's a big part of these types of farmhouse beers and what's funny is that i think people attach uh kind of more mineral heavy uh and sulfate heavy uh water profiles to hoppy beers our hoppy beers are actually kind of in the middle we don't go super super heavy sulfate to chloride on the uh, hoppy beers and we're typically more in the like Four to one, five to one range. Maybe on a double IPA, we'll push it up to like eight to one or right. so. But um, yeah, we're definitely our saisons and our farmhouse beers get a lot more. We we aggressively mineralize those. All right. So uh, while we were touring around and looking at, at the various things you've done here in your brewery facility so far, you took you actually have two different barrel rooms. We do. Yes. Uh, and I, well, and that was even without getting into the storage facility that you have across yeah, the way. Yeah, the annex, right? Yeah. So uh, while we were walking around, we were talking about like you have that one storage room that we walked into that was like your bourbon barrel and gin and rye and everything and else. Rum. Room, uh, and rum and rum and, making a mess everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And walking into that room and like just this sort of massive aroma, but you were talking a little bit about what you perceived as the difference between some of these things. So can, can we just, uh, can you lay out for the audience, even if they don't get their hands on an actual full barrel, mm-hmm. but they have the ability to experiment around with some of these different spirits, like how so we rum, use bourbon barrels well, or like, how we treat, handle them as well, opposed to wine barrel. You well, mean? Not even that. It's like, what characteristics do you see out of whiskey? Uh, so like bourbon, yeah. Versus like what sort of characteristics are you seeing out of rum? Versus what sort of characteristics are you seeing out of gin? And yeah. Where do those play? Well, so yeah, I mean, first off, um, I am not a, I'm not myself a huge whiskey drinker. I mean, not like whiskey straight. I just don't. You know, I think I consume enough beer that I don't need to add that many more <laughs> uh, cocktails in my life. But uh, I do like whiskey and. Um, We've we given the fact that we're you know several thousand miles away from uh, Bourbon County, we really don't get the pick of barrels that we'd like. 
And a couple of years ago, this kind of got thrown into relief when we opened up the truck, the whole container of stuff that we got, and we got uh, a whole round of Knob Creek barrels mm -hmm. uh, from the Beam Distillery. And opened up and smelled them, and I, I had never really had Knob Creek before. Smelled and smelled okay, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out tonight, and I'm going to buy some Knob Creek, and I'm going to taste some Knob Creek and see what these barrels are. And tasting that, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like this what are we done? What, what are we in for? I mean, it was just, it was a very different uh, flavor of bourbon than I'd ever experienced before. It was, you know, a lot earthier, a lot fruitier. And it kind of was this eye-opening moment for me about how uh, diverse bourbon in particular can be, but I suppose whiskey as a whole. And I knew it in principle, but I thought that a barrel was going to be pretty much a barrel. A 12-year bourbon is a 12-year bourbon regardless of the distiller, and it's just not the case. So step one was that we had to narrow down over time to improve our program. We had to narrow down whose whiskeys we liked and what barrel characteristics we liked. And then also kind of calibrate our expectations because there's 2,000 miles worth of brewers between us and Bourbon County who, mm -hmm. have, uh, who have proximity and are able to get those barrels. I mean, I'm jealous of the guys in Indiana who can drive down there and <laughs> pick them up right and left. So we get all of our bourbon barrels pretty much once a year. We've settled on... Uh, Heaven Hill, mm -hmm. we think, makes uh, just really I was clean, ask if classic. You tried that, yeah. yeah, Heaven Hill is our is our is our preferred well, uh, vendor or well, they, they distiller. Make a whole line of bourbons, so. Yeah, and whether it be the stuff that's uh, you know some of the I believe the Henry McKenna or stuff that's like Elijah Craig, I don't know, my, no Evan Evan Williams barrels. Those ones are like they you get this really classic classic coconut vanilla and caramel off mm -hmm. of them and I really like that you know I want what I look for in a bourbon barrel is typicity and kind of a stereotypical bourbon character because mm -hmm. when we design a beer that's what we're going for um, well and when we walked into that room like I was immediately hit over the head with like classic bourbon barrel type yeah you know, maple the, wood, the aromas were amazing bourbon Right, and it's, it'd be, it would smell a bunch of, like berry fruit. It would be really weird in there, like berry fruit and horseradish, like the Knob Creek room would. Um, <laughs> sorry, Jim Bean. Uh, but, yeah, so that's what we look for in, in bourbon. And then in terms of contact time, you know, uh, we go typically a minimum of nine months and up to 18 or 24 months on some of the barrels. I find that you often get pretty nice bourbon character uh, within just a couple of months of filling, but mm -hmm. for us, we really do seek some level of like pleasant oxidation in those beers, some mellowing, some uh, not just mellowing in terms of alcohol, but actual oxidation. Um, I think that's a part of barrel-aged beers that sometimes doesn't get discussed enough. People talk about oak flavor and barrel flavor, but actually kind of pleasant aging and pleasant agedness in some of those beers. Um, right. I think that Matt Van Wyke does a really you know, excellent job of kind of in his blends of keeping that component and keeping it a beer tasting fresh, but also tasting like it has some you know, yeah. age to it. Um, so now that makes me wonder for, I mean, obviously for you guys, you've got these big 50 to 60 gallon barrels. Mm -hmm. You can fill those up. For the homebrewer who's doing things with uh, bourbon soaked oak and everything else with it, if you're thinking like some of those micro oxidation characteristics are very important, like what do they do to capture some of that? I wonder. Well, I think that you uh, don't use bourbon soaked oak. I think you use oak soaked bourbon, and that's how you can achieve it. So, uh, taking chips or spirals and putting it into a bottle, putting that into a heated environment, and kind of creating a uh, rapid oxidation, then pulling the wood out tossing the wood and using the liquor, because unlike us, we can't, <laughs> I'm not allowed to dump a bear, 
uh, yeah, a bottle right. of whiskey into into a into right. a beer, but you guys can. It's yeah, well, you can. So, I have. Yeah. You could also just do it. I do. And I, I've had uh, oak cubes sitting in bourbon for fifteen years now. Uh, that I haven't yeah. quite used yet. So. But, but what you want to do then is not use the cubes, but use the bourbon. The no, actually, give me no. The bourbon tastes terrible. Oh, does it? Yeah, it does. It well, that might take a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's a fifteen years is excessive. But I do. I actually think that that's one of those things that I had a friend do one time, and he did that flip, and I think it's actually a pretty smart move to go about. Rather, if you're a homebrew, why not just add the liquor? You yeah, know, exactly. Yeah, you don't have taxation codes to worry about. Right. So now that's bourbon. What do you think are, are the difference in the characteristics that you get for wine or for gin? Yeah, well, I mean, red wine barrels, I think, are a real challenge, especially in Oregon, where we're mainly getting Pinot Noir. So we're not getting these big, aggressive reds. You know, we don't get Merlot and Syrah and Cab. Uh, uh, that might be the first time I've ever heard Merlot referred to as aggressive. As, yeah, as an aggressive red. But compared to Pinot, it is. I mean, compared and Gamay Noir really doesn't, there's not really much uh, oak-age Gamay Noir uh, in Oregon. I mean, there's a little bit, but those barrels are even harder to come by. So most of the time we get Pinot, very subtle, very mushroomy, very earthy. Um, and for us, Oregon Pinots, I love Oregon Pinot um, and really think that, you know, as with any barrel-age project, what you're trying to accomplish is honor the barrel while also making an interesting beer with that barrel. Mm -hmm. So for us, we kind of try and let the those delicate notes of the Pinot shine by using it in things that are quite light, like tart farmhouse ales, like Bon Vivant, um, which we should have grabbed a bottle of that, but we don't. It's probably up. Excuse me, it's out front. Um, but then from there, you know, that's a relatively short contact time. Those flavors are really beautiful, but you have to know what you're looking for. Um, I think that they don't hit you over the head as aggressively as uh, as bourbon notes do, for example. And well, how, and how long do you think the wine barrels last? Because I, I we'll reuse. So we use them once, really, to get any kind of wine character, mm -hmm. and then after that, we're typically seeking to use the wood more as it. Um, you know, as a home for bacteria and, and wild yeast. Well, I was going to say, I, th I think that might be part of the reason why I don't think we've seen as many wine-based barrel beers, at least in terms of like the, hey, big obvious characteristic wine characteristic things. It's on the rise a little bit, though, wouldn't yeah, you say, I Ben? So. I mean, it's it, well, in the past it's been bourbon barrel, but we're seeing, and I think with you guys maybe too, as far as your selection in, in barrels, we're seeing a lot more in the Northwest, at least. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, just, I, I also, I just don't know that, like, red wine barrels in particular with, like, a with base styles that are not wild and sour, like, I just don't think there's a ton of future there. I mean, in reality, it's like, I think you're better off brewing with grapes. As yeah. opposed to using a red wine barrel right. in that case, you know. Yeah. Good well, point. Yeah, I mean, if, I, I think if the primary thing that you're wanting to get is grape, I think you're totally right. Yeah. And, and I've done that with even just the stupid uh, Alexander uh, concentrate cans, mm -hmm. you know, which make terrible wine. Yeah. We use them for wine, people. Good grape juice, though. But they're good grape yeah. juice, and you can use, yeah. yeah, and use them for, we've used them to flavor beers before to pump up some perceived wine character or something like yeah. that, and it's, it works. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't think, I think that wine barrels are always going to be better served as in the uh, kind of Breton sour realm than mm -hmm. they are in the conventional barrel age realm. All right. So here we go. Uh, getting is this down the lightning the round now? Yeah, yeah. getting down the yeah. lightning round. Yeah, Dave is getting tired of the idea of having to edit all this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can just do it uncut. It's fine. <laughs> except, for the, except for the yeah. Jim Beam part. <laughs> all right. Uh, what is something you wish more people would drink or explore? 
sorry, the people. What would, is something that you wish that more people would drink or explore? In terms of anything, just open beer, widely open. Oh, in terms of beer, um, that's a very good question. I haven't really thought about that. Well, is there, is there something you guys make? I'm, well, thinking about that. I'm trying to think about yeah. it. is there a beer that we make that like kind of I find disappointing? Well, like I wish that it sold better than it does. Or, or even not so much a beer that you make right now that you wish it sold better, but like a beer that you want to make that you wish it sold We're pretty better. fortunate here. I mean, we have such a good platform between our three barrel uh, system and this system that we can, I mean, there's very little that we, I, I don't think there's a single beer that I want to make that like I feel like I can't make, you know? So uh, that I feel pretty good about. I. I think that, you know, this is going to seem, sound like a weird answer, but I really wish people would drink session IPAs more. <laughs> I think that, like, I think, unfortunately, of any of these variant IPA trends and hoppy trends that has kind of seems to not be able to move as well as it should, it seems to me that, like, those types of beers get overlooked. That people still want, they don't believe that they can get the same level of hop flavor, intensity in those beers. And I'm talking about mm. consumer expectation around it. And it's really, uh, at least in the Northwest, it's, it's a hard sell. Lunch Break, I think, is one of our absolute best beers that we make. Um, and it sells fine, but barely fine enough for us to you know, keep making it year-round. And it's one of those things where I really just wish that, um, uh, I, I think, unfortunately, people are still a little bit driven by uh, misperception about what lower alcohol means in terms of hoppy mm -hmm. beers. And this then you know, are, are looking at a price point and saying, well, I'm not going to spend only 50 cents less for a 5% beer as opposed to 6.5% yeah, beer. I, I, I like it's something that makes me feel more relaxed, right? You know? Yeah. So now when we were turning around earlier, you, you pointed out that you have a tank dedicated to nothing but the sort of your kettle sour beers or yeah. lactose sour beers. And the fact that like, you felt like you were right around the corner from getting a kettle sour you know, or a quick sour type beer on tap year round. Do you... Do you feel any sort of push or pull with that sort of sensation with the fact that you've got this, you know, like you've got a session IPA that is just barely sort of maintaining the trading water, so to speak, in terms of sales, and now suddenly you're like you're bringing up this kettle sour behind it. Do you think there's like a difference in the trends, or what do you say? Well, I think that the sours, sour beers, I think, appeal to a slightly different audience. I mean, or at least if it's there's it's a diff, it is a different segment of the market. I mean, I don't think that. Unlike, I think Session IPA just lives in the shadow of IPA, and that's the problem that Session IPA faces. If we took our lunch break and just sold it as I, lunch break IPA, it would sell way better, right? And no one would look at the alcohol, but like at some point, I bemoan just calling everything IPA, and it's like, okay, what if we call this Session IPA, or IPA Junior, Mini IPA, right? Whatever it is, like, <laughs> why, can't, why can't people get that? that? That to me is it. You know, I think the sour thing exists separately. I'm not worried Shit. about... Wait, hold on. Why don't people just call it pale ale? Well, I think they are different. I think yeah, that there's I think so. a, yeah. I think that they're pretty pretty distinct beers. I mean, having uh, I mean, I, I had the good fortune this year of judging the the American pale ales all the way through at GABF from first round through metal round, and wow. they are a uh, they're different. I mean, you're talking about kind of you mentioned talking about kind of old school character. Uh, I think what actually the idea of creating session IPAs has done is allowed the us to honor these old kind of classic American pale ales in a way that wouldn't get any attention otherwise. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, I always kind of 
think it confuses the picture and turns things sour, but that's me. Uh, all right. It is what it is, and like I, I'm still very confused by the session IPA versus pale ale <laughs> thing. Um, all right. Uh, are there other brewing thoughts that you think uh, that we haven't talked about? Uh, things that you, philosophies that you believe in, things that you want people to understand about how you brew, and things that you might think that are applicable to the home brewer? Um, I th- well, I have lots of opinions. <laughs> lots of opinions. <laughs> Feel free. Uh, we, have, we have we have digital recorders. We can yeah. No, I don't. Go. There's nothing. I know. I don't. I tend to. I, I think that sometimes. I, th- I think that my the thing that I stated earlier that credo of kind of like drinkability of like you know you really get a couple sips into a beer and it's you either know that it's delicious or it's not you know or it's intriguing or it's not and you it wants you keep on to come back. I mean I think that. That's uh, kind of manifest in the way we choose what styles to brew, this, the the types of beers we make, um, the way we work with water, things like that. I mean, it's supposed. To, it's, I think that plays through in pretty much all of our decision making here. Uh, and that for me is, you know, I I just appreciate beers that are really focused. I appreciate breweries who have really focused identities, even if their flavor p- profile doesn't necessarily suit my palate perfectly. Um, what do you mean by focused? Uh, that I think are, that like have, without using the word balance, that have a kind of like clear clarion call of flavor. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's one of these things, it's hard to put into ex- precise words, but when you have a beer that's like really focused, that's gonna, no matter what style it is, it, you taste it, or I taste it, and I say, this beer is like, it makes sense, like it, it self-realizes in a certain way. I, and, I can understand that. Yeah. You know, too many beers, I think, get muddied either trying to file, file style guidelines or from technical flaws or from heavy hands of malt or the specs are just not quite in balance or lack of finesse or just, like, lack of a clear idea. And one thing that I take a lot of pride in for our beers, because we make such a wide range of beers, is not that every beer starts out with perfect focus, but that when we identify what the kind of box that that beer lives in is that we hone it and hone it and hone it and pare it down and get that beer to be its best version of itself and not let it try and be two ideas that we combine. Mm-hmm. Some of the worst beers we've made at Breakside are ones where they're deci- decided by committee, you know? <laughs> because everyone tries to put their impact onto a beer to shape the flavor of it. In reality, the best beers, I think, are ones where they're extremely personal ideas that start out and someone puts an idea out on the table, puts a beer out on the table, and then allows internally for us as Breakside to workshop it and turn it into a world-class beer, you know, and I think for home brewers, I would say, you know, I would encourage, I, as, mu- as fun as it can be to make a huge range of styles and try things and never brew a beer twice, I actually think that, like, finding that, trying to find that focus in the beer is really an important skill as a brewer. Mm-hmm. Well, so, uh, when you say you, you workshop the beer here, what does that mean? Well, what we'll do is we'll taste the beer. So we, for us, it, we, we will brew the beer. We'll make three barrels of it, you know, or six barrels, depending on how good an idea we think it is. Or sometimes we'll even make 30 barrels of it if we think that it's, you know, a pretty good idea. Uh, and, you know, then we come to taste panel here, and it's not a blind sensory. We don't do a lot of, uh, we do do some technical stuff and, you know, kind of uh, quantitative stuff in sensory panel. But a lot of it's just, like, talking about, uh, Kind of, it's just a feedback like between the, you know, the seven or eight people who sit on our sensory panel about how to improve that beer, and what we can do and to nitpick that beer. I mean, you could come in here on a 
Wednesday and hear us talk about the beer and our beers and probably think that we didn't actually like drinking our own beers. Uh, and that's how ruthless it can get sometimes. And trying to make some very concrete steps, and sometimes it's one step, sometimes it's six steps, to bring that beer into focus again. And then we try and, depending on what the beer is, rebrew immediately. So we make those changes, mm -hmm. you know. And that panel, do they have the recipe in front of them? They're, are they seeing exactly what went into that beer to make it the beer? or are they e Yeah, I mean, you can have as much information in front of you as you want. Some of our panelists prefer just to talk about the beer they're tasting. You know, others uh, prefer to have the full recipe as they're talking about it. Because it's an interesting difference between that and, like, the BJCP notion, which is like, ah, you know nothing about the beer. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, everything's your, but your it's, own. But it's a different purpose, too. Well, know? I know, but it, you, know, you kind of think we're in a commercial world. You'd want to have people to be able to look at the recipe and go, oh, well, I think that might be the thing. Yeah, yeah. on the other hand, I can see that why, I mean, the, the recipe may not matter if you're just talking about what's in the glass in front of you, you know? All okay, right, so last, last question. question. Last question. Uh, let's do this. Well, what non beer thing are you fascinated by or obsessed with? Other than, uh, my, my, other than my dog. Um, let's see. I have a number of other hobbies. I don't know. I'm not obsessed is a weird word. I'm, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would say that. Uh, I do a lot of CrossFit. I really enjoy that. I'm not an excellent athlete, but I really like being able to get some energy out. Uh, I used to ski a lot more than I do now, but I really enjoy skiing too. So I mean, hiking, skiing, outdoor activity, uh, CrossFit is probably more. You know contain a gym setting, but for me that's a huge part of like how I maintain a work-life balance is definitely getting like getting my energy out outside of the brewery. I also, because I don't get to brew as much anymore, I'm a pretty avid home cook. Uh, mm. I'm, the, I'm the cook at home and so uh, I think my actually my cooking skills have gotten proportionately you know, or exponentially better as I've brewed less in the brewery, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, am, I, I have more Time to spend thinking about that. Focus on projects. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so what's your favorite dish to make at home? Uh, I don't know that I have a single favorite dish to make. I did make. I really like uh, this. Something that's a little probably close to Larry's heart here is uh, adobo, right? Mm. Chicken adobo. Oh, wow. Americanized version of it. You My know, wife probably. would love to try that. Yeah, but I like. So I just did. And I think it's a really versatile sauce, right? You have this kind of like. You have umami and you have vinegar and you have like whatever your protein is. In this case, I like chicken, but uh, I just did one the other day. It was like an acorn squash, maitake mushroom, and pear, uh, all roasted with oh, wow. you know like chicken breast and then an adobo sauce. And I was like, man, like this turned out really good. Wow, so I don't know, great. that turned out pretty good. I'll have you over for dinner sometime. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. through the restaurant. <laughs> now, now I'm hungry. Like Reinvent Filipino cooking, yeah. actually. Oh, yeah, Filipino by Northwest, right? I was like in the new seasons, new seasons produce section. I was like, the guy handed me a pear. He's like, here, try some box pear. And I tasted it. I was like, oh, this is delicious. I was like, what would this go with? So I was planning on making adobo. I was like, I guess I could do like roasted pear, my taki mushrooms, and there's some squash over there. So let's do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you, you guys like, are way. Part of your neck of the woods and mushrooms there. Yeah, yep. I was gonna say you guys are way northeast in terms of your produce choices. I'm looking at it going. Really, my tucky? Yeah, yeah, we don't get those on a common basis, but okay. Yeah. Well, you know, if I can add something real quick, I know it's the last question. Just, just come from an outside perspective. I've known Ben for a while. Uh, Brexit was a, mm -hmm. a customer of mine when I worked for a Country Mall Group. Things and, that, and before that, when you were at Steinbart. Well, see, and this is kind of where I'm going with this. So I would like to tie in how I met Ben. Is where 
he came and I was part of a homebrew club called the Oregon Brew Crew. He came <laughs> to talk about. He knows the story probably pretty very well. I know where you're going with this, yeah. He came to talk about IPAs that night, and traffic, you know, was pretty heavy that night. Got there a little late, and uh, I had a double, maybe it was even a triple IPA that I had a keg of that they felt the duty of emptying before he even got up there to speak. And, um, you know, and I was pretty proud of the time, and uh, this is all about what I was talking about earlier, about humbling yourself as a home mm-hmm. brewer and listening to others. And when Ben got there to talk about water treatment and, and additions, um, and and it, i got to be honest, my feelings were hurt a little bit in the beginning, but I actually took what he said and said, you know what? I, I Well, actually, what I said to myself, I'm going to prove Ben wrong. And I went home and I did what he said, and I proved him right is what I did. <laughs> you know, but my point is, is that um, that's how I actually get to know Ben. And one, that's one of the things that I respected about him is right off the bat, Brickside's been very open. And, and, and a lot of the, most of the breweries actually important are to home brewers and talking to them, trying their beers, you know. But when he tried the beer I had, and it was a good beer, but he had beer. very good constructive criticism about it on what you could do to make this a better beer. To me, that was fantastic. Two, I've sat here and these guys in these tasting panels, and not only do they just taste beer to say this is good or not good, they also talk about the future of this beer and how this beer does is going to do over time. And I've never, and I've been involved with some tasting panels, even with Sierra Nevada and other breweries, but I've never been involved in a tasting panel in a brewery where they've actually said, is it good today? And is it going to be good in 90 days? Is it going to be good mm-hmm. in six months or whatever? My point is, these guys have done that. And that to me was very an eye-opening experience on that. The other one is you guys had this challenge. I think it's maybe your personal challenge. Is you said you wanted to brew, what was it? How many different beers you wanted to brew? <laughs> well, it was in there was a lot of people who in, back in 2013 when we expanded on the production brewery thought that that was going to kill our creativity. That we somehow would suddenly uh, you know stop making a lot of different beers, and so we committed to making a hundred different beers that year, which we did. <laughs> Which, you know, actually last year we made 104 beers again, and this year we'll actually make more than that. Uh, so I, th- I think it's in, the, it's in the water at this point. Yeah. It's not just the, it's not just the uh, gypsum and Epsom salts. It's the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the drive to make a lot of beers. But, it, you know, I think that by institutionalizing a culture of experimentation and creativity, we give ourselves the opportunity to uh, be flexible about the beers. It means that we have a lot of beers we make some of which are destined to be great beers, uh, like great like volume beers, others mm-hmm. that are tiny little passion projects, and others that are one and done kind of experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fourth beer on this flight right now for you guys is a Fricka Lager. We won't make that beer again because is really expensive, but it's a roast wheat mate lager. Um, the wheat's roasted by uh, just drying it in the sun. So it doesn't actually get Jeez. malted. It's actually just It's a, the old white malt. It's well. It's it's they burn the sun. It's sun dried until the chaff burns, and it separates out. So the kernels are left with a little bit of nuttiness and toastiness. And then we thought some yerba mate would be like the fun, yeah, kind of supporting character in there. Again, a beer we'll probably never make again, but we wanted to play with the fricka one, so we said, great, we can do well, it. No, but again, I mean, it's the old white malt. Right? I mean, you know, like you think back before this, everybody figured out indirect cooling or sorry, indirect drying. And yeah, you know, everything was fired over coke smoke, and or even before coke smoke, peat smoke, and wood smoke. Mm-hmm. White malt was the stuff that was laid out on screens in the sun, right? You know, and, yeah. and be sun dried, and that was oh, that was special because that was the one that was not smoky, not harsh, not everything else. Well, I mean, and that's kind of my point is these guys are. I mean, we're here at their production facility, but these guys, and as they've gotten bigger, drinking. yeah, and that's my whole point. They're still like. 
because you know a lot of, we were list, a lot of homebrewers are listening. There's still that homebrewing side with that experimentation still takes place. They try it. A lot of them are fantastic. Maybe some are less than desirable for Ben, but they're still get drank. You know, fantastic. So for me, this is one I've always been, and we talked about you and me earlier. So these guys have always been a role model for me. Ben's always been there, um, fantastic. And I think for any, not only breweries but homebrewers here in Portland, these guys really do set the stage for experimentation and just fantastic beers. Um, and if you haven't tried them, I would recommend trying them for sure. That's a, that's a right. great way to wrap things up. Uh, we're here at Breakside Brewery talking to Ben Edmonds. Thank you so much Thank for you your guys. time. My pleasure. Thank you guys for hanging out so long for us. So there you have it. Ben Edmonds from Breakside Brewing talking to us about uh, how the brewery started, uh, how they make their beers, their philosophy of brewing. And uh, the first time I was there, I walked in and I saw that they had a rye IPA made with Brett C. And I thought to myself, in all the rye IPAs I've made, I've never even considered something like that. So, of course, I had to try it. And I got to say, that is now high on my list of one of the things I've got to brew. Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, I'll tell you, that little facility, and I say little, I mean, that was an impressively sized uh, yeah, brewery right. with its own separate uh, uh, barrel room, a big tap area. And what was also really impressive was they actually had separated brewer's offices that actually looked like real offices. It was sort of strange. <laughs> yeah, really, man. It wasn't just like a closet that they had managed to throw a desk and a chair into. Yeah. And I mean, those IPAs that they had, the, I mean, those were fantastic. So, I mean, it was really just a, a nice little trip. I would say that all of their beers were epic and crushable. There you go. And hoppy. <laughs> and hoppy, too. So, Okay, we are going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, it will be time for uh, Ask Denny and Drew. And uh, we'll see if we can come up with some halfway decent answers to your questions. Nah, why change? everybody it's time for <clears throat> welcome back everybody it's time for another round of your favorite game show ask denny and drew the part of the show where we read the questions that you sent us and see if we can come up with answers that make any sense whatsoever uh our first <laughs> yeah that's right and uh no good looking guy is the host so <laughs> so uh I guess, Drew, you have the first question today. Go for it, man. Yeah, so Jason James contacted us on Facebook, and he said, uh, inspired by a Facebook conversation about uh, post-fermentation dilution in another homebrew group, uh, he asked us, is adding water post-fermentation a good idea? And have you heard of macrobreweries doing this? How does it affect heading, and how does it uh, affect pH? Uh, so, meanwhile, 
while we were discussing this in private, the Facebook thread that he was talking about kind of blew up and so into kind of a big thing. So we decided we'd cover it here on the show for a little bit. Uh, yeah, post fermentation dilution. It's totally a thing. It's totally a thing that the macro breweries do. Budweiser is most famous for it with their uh, how they brew Budweiser and Bud Light. They brew what they call a chip beer. Okay, that's the beer that goes on the the chips in the tank, and it's a stronger. Uh, more potent version of Budweiser, but what they actually do is they brew at strength, so they have increased capacity coming out of the tanks. So, what do I mean by that? Well, it turns out big, empty stainless steel vessels are expensive. They take up room. They cost money to cool and control, and you're also talking about having to move more liquid around the brewery. So, what a lot of the macro breweries will do is they will brew a beer that, say, you know, a third, uh, a half stronger than what they intend to sell to the public. So that way they can squeeze more capacity, more alcohol in those tanks. And when they come out the other side, they dilute it just before they put it into the bottles or the cans. And so you can totally do this at home too. And the right way to do it is basically to have freshly boiled and cooled water and use that to add to your beer. A uh, reason for the freshly boiled and cooled is the biggest thing that you want to avoid is you want to avoid getting any oxygen into the final product, right? So we we talk about people obsessing over low oxygen methods and trying to figure out like, hey, how do you purge more oxygen out of the kegs? Uh, one of our experiments we're doing right now. So if you were just to add cold water to the keg and then rack your beer onto that to dilute down, you would actually be adding a hell of a lot of oxygen into the beer because there's a lot of oxygen entrained in regular water. So what we do is we boil. The boil drives off the oxygen. Cool, you cool it, preferably in something yeah, cool like a it keg. cool for sure, so it doesn't uh, intake oxygen again. Yeah, yeah. so I, I do it when, when I do it, I'll cover in a keg, and then I'll just then rack into that. And the calculations are very simple. There's a, a simple dilution calculation. It's basically take your... Uh, Take the amount of alcohol that you have in your beer right now, multiply it by the volume that you have, and then divide it by the new volume that with the water that you're adding. So that way, because water adds no alcohol, so it's really you're averaging out how much alcohol is going into the water solution. And yeah, I'll just rack into the keg, seal it up, put some pressure on it, and then I'll give it a couple of uh, nice gentle shakes and then I'll go and I'll really push the gas on it and I'll do my carbonation. Method. Yeah. It's, it's pretty easy. Uh, um, the, the original conversation people were saying, well, this is cheating and it's like <laughs> cheating. Come on. Who says it's cheating? Um, you, you do have to know in advance that you're going to be doing this and take that into account in your recipe formulation. But other than that, it is simply just a different way of making a recipe. So, you know, do it if you need to do it. If you want to, it's fine. It's not cheating. It's easy. And, uh, you know, if you're limited on fermenter space, it can be a big help. Yeah. And uh, the other thing I do with it is, so I have a Zymatic at home. And I'll take and I'll make a as strong of a batch of beer as I can make in a Zymatic at two and a half gallons. And then I'll dilute it down when I go into the keg. So I've done this multiple times where I make essentially a strong brown ale in the Zymatic. And then I dilute it into the keg and I bump the volume all the way up to five gallons. And I end up with a really tasty yeah, mild. It's easy to do. 
So, so the next go. question comes to us via Facebook from Chris Tate. He says, hey, guys, just want to start off by saying that I love the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. I like how you both have a carefree but still hardcore approach to brewing. Yeah, well, it happens. Yeah. I'm more carefree. Um, I do have a quick question, though. We're brewing our ninth batch of beer on the stove with a partial boil extract batch. Our electric stove is horribly inconsistent in maintaining temps, and because of that, I worry about steeping the specialty grains. How much do I need to worry about tannins and hitting my gravity when the majority of sugars come from the LME? I am dealing with temp swings of about 10 degrees. Thanks for putting out such a fun and informative podcast, and keep it up. You guys rock. As for the beer, there were about three pounds of grains, two gallons of water per the recipe. There are an additional nine pounds of Golden Light LME. The hottest the water got to was 168. The recipe calls for 154. Based on what you said, and this is after I'd given him a quick answer, uh, I doubt there is much to worry about as it stayed below 170. I will taste the wort once our boil is done and see how it tastes. If there are tannins, is there any way to clean them up? I've done a starter using one liter of 1040 wort that I renewed each night since Thursday, and I'll be pitching a one liter slurry. So will the yeast be able to clean any potential tannins up? Uh, we'll just start with that last part first because it's real quick. Uh, the answer is no, uh, that doesn't happen. There are ways of uh, fining your beer with various substances uh, post-fermentation that maybe can help drop out some tannins, but uh, it's nothing I've ever done very much or worried about. Okay, let's get back to the core of the matter here. Number one, as we've said many times before, while heat can exacerbate tannin extraction, the main culprit to uh, have undesirable tannins extracted is the pH of your wort, water, whatever you're steeping your grains in. So let's take a look at that. You use three pounds of grain, two gallons of water. Grain has a natural tendency to pull down the pH of the water. And, uh, I, you know, for many years, I brewed beers without any uh, regard to pH whatsoever. And uh, going on the theory that I read in some book someplace that uh, if you have even a pound of Crystal 60 in your recipe, that's going to put the pH right for you. I don't know if that's exactly true, but the basic theory works. So three pounds of grain in two gallons of water, you should end up with a pH that's in the ballpark, at least for steeping. Okay, those temperature swings, you were shooting for uh, 154, you got up to 168, no big deal. If this was an all-grain beer, you might end up with a little bit more body or something. Uh, my guess is that in an extract beer, you will hardly even notice the difference. So the real answer to uh, Chris's question here is, you're cool, man. You're good to go. Um, there's a very good chance that your pH was in line and you extracted no tannins. And that temp swing certainly didn't uh, do you any serious damage. So... Go forth, ferment the beer, drink it, and enjoy. That's what we're all here for, right? Indeed. And yeah, I agree. I think until you're getting into really wackadoodle pH swings, uh, which really you're not going to see in in the case of the steeping here. Yep, I think absolutely. So you have the next one, and oh my goodness, it's a Saison question. Go figure. Go figure. 
Uh, all right. Yeah. This one comes from Richard Bachelor, who emailed me at my email at the podcast, DrewExperimentalBrew.com. And he asked, I'm going to brew my first Saison. I intend to use Maris Otter, Vienna, Wheat, and Carapils in a 60-25-10-5 ratio. I will also use the Y-Yeast 3724 yeast. I have Columbus, Steering Golding, and Tettenanger hops available. For a 5-gallon brew, could you please suggest suitable hop additions and timing? I'd be very grateful for your thoughts. With thanks and kind regards. All right, so uh, Richard, I will tell you right now, with the using of Maris Otter Vienna uh, as a combination in there, I think you're going to have a lot of malt character in the Saison. Uh, so here's what I would do. I would actually say, you know what? Don't go for a classical Saison because my first inclination with your hop choices there would be, go, oh, we'll use Steering, Goldings, and Tetanine. That's very classical Saison. But since you have so much kind of big biscuity type malt character that you're going to get coming forward in here, I would actually say, you know what? Screw the tr- classic Saison. Take your inspiration from... Uh, Ublon Schuf from Brasseria Schuf and make yourself an actual like really bright and hoppy Saison. And so here I would say I would actually probably not use the uh, either the steering golding or the tetanana. Uh I would choose to leave one of those aside. I would get your bitterness uh, from Columbus and I would actually go to about two thirds, I think two thirds, three quarters of your gravity level. Uh, with the Columbus in a 60-minute edition. And then for the rest of it, I would actually layer in uh, Columbus and Styrian Goldings as a 10-minute edition and a knockout edition and pull your final IBUs up to uh, even with your gravity. So if you're going for a 1065 Saison, go for around 65 IBUs. And I think you'll you'll be pleasantly surprised at how well that works. There you go, man. Simple, straightforward. Yeah. What do you well, think? I'm nowhere near the Cezanne god that you are, but uh, just using my taste imagination tells me that that's a, a darn good uh, way to go about it. So, yeah, there you go, man. I, I got to go. say, you were right again. Uh, maybe there is something to this Cezanne stuff. Who knows? It's not like uh, there's a whole industry based around it. <laughs> All righty. Next question is from Mike from Maine via email. Mike writes, Gents, great job with the podcast. Why, thank you, Mike. Denny's ukulele chorus is often stuck in my head, and I just want to apologize for that right now. Uh, though I replace the beer, 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 beer with bacon and other words. And that's an interesting idea. I learned of experimental brewing by listening to Brad Smith's podcast a couple of months ago. I've listened to all 138 of his episodes, and I'm about a third of the way through the experimental brewing series. I've made four all-grain batches so far and would like to try a barley wine. I found the AHA recipe for Sierra Nevada's Bigfoot barley wine. However, it calls for English Crystal 105 Levabond, and my homebrew shop here in New Hampshire only carries 15, 40, 60, 75, and 120. Nobody I know has even heard of 105. Any advice on what I should substitute the 105 with? I thought about using half 75 and half 120, but I'm not sure if that's the best way to go. There's a good chance that I'm worrying too much about it, since I'm sure I'll drink it regardless of what I Mm -hmm. use. Thanks for the advice, Mike from Maine. Well, Mike, yes, you are worrying too much about it. It's beer, for goodness sakes. Don't worry about it. Enjoy it. Okay, so I would say in that situation, 
I would either just replace all the 105 with uh, 75 or maybe all 75 and maybe a, a couple ounces of the 120. The thing about uh, trying to blend crystal malts together to make a particular color is that uh, you may get the color right, but you're not going to get the flavor right. 120 has a very distinctive flavor to it that uh, isn't going to be at all like 105. And there's a, a couple other things in here that go along with the don't worry about it theory. Number one, having a recipe for a beer is, as far as I'm concerned, only about 10% of what it takes to replicating that beer. Your process is equally important. So, um, you know, putting 75 in there is not going to get you any further off necessarily than if you had the 105 and uh, your technique was different than Sierra Nevada's. The other thing to take in, into account is that any particular color of crystal malt is a blend of crystal malts of varying color. For instance, you look at a handful of Crystal 60, and you're going to see some real dark kernels in there, some real light-colored kernels in there, some kind of medium-colored kernels in there. It's an average based on uh, the color of all the different uh, kernels going into it. So, in that regard, close enough is good enough. Uh, so, my advice is if 75 is as close as you can get, if you think you want it darker, put in a couple ounces of 120 also, and then enjoy your beer, man, uh, because you made it and it's going to be great. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, that a barley wine already has so much going on in it that missing out the crystal on a couple points is not going to really affect you much. I'll double up on Danny's point about the crystal malts are already a blend. That's the reason why when you look at them, you'll see a lot of darker grains and some lighter grains. Uh, at, regarding the 105, just off the, the top of my head and doing a little research, the closest that I can think about it, if you're obsessed with the idea that you have to get to 105, is basically a Simpsons Crystal Dark. Uh, it's a British crystal. Uh, it runs, they say, somewhere between 95 to 107 level bond. And uh, Fawcett, uh, Thomas Fawcett, also has a malt uh, called Dark Crystal that runs just a hair darker, uh, starting at 110. So I would I would say if you're gonna if you're gonna be obsessive about it and want to get it dead on right, look for that Simpsons. It's also a yeah, it is. But remember, you're not gonna get it dead on right, no matter what you do. You're gonna make a beer that is very much like Bigfoot. You're not going to make Bigfoot exactly because. Only Sierra Nevada can do that. So, okay, man, one more question, and it's yours. All right, so our last question for the day comes from Jamie Walton uh, from the UK, who contacted us via Facebook. says, I was just listening to the new show in the car today and was wondering about the Maltose Falcon Sammy Claus-style recipe. I guess the newest version, 2001, is the best version? I was led to believe that the only hops used were Challenger. I'll use the S189 yeast, as my chances of getting a WLP885 in the UK are slim to zero. How many packs would you use in a gravity that big? I wondered about one pack per gallon. What do you reckon? So, yeah, Jamie, the, the recipe from 2001 is the last one that we did. We were actually getting ready to brew uh, the new version this weekend, but uh, things have come up. So we're going to brew it uh, next month in January. 
And the new version is much more in line with what you'd actually expect from Sammy Claus. So I don't know if Sammy Claus actually used Challenger for the, all of its run, but we are tending to focus on sort of neutral bittering hops. So we're redoing the recipe this year and simplifying the living bejesus out of it. So it's going to be roughly about 50-50 pills and Munich with a touch of Carafa 2 in it to kind of boost the color. Uh, the bittering will be very much in line with sort of my modern take on it, which is all Magnum and then Hollow Tower for some character. And for the yeast, I would say for a five-gallon batch with this sort of gravity, and remember for listeners who don't have the recipe in your head, this beer starts at 1.140 original gravity. So it's a tiny bit big. And what I would say is for the size batch that uh, Jamie is talking about doing, I would actually say that if you did three packs of the S189 properly rehydrated, uh, you'll be fine. Yeah, because uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Yeast. Although uh, throwing in a fourth just to be sure certainly couldn't make any difference. Although I'm not much of a guy to rehydrate dry yeast, when you're abusing it like this, I certainly would. Yeah, I mean, and yes, this is this is real abuse. I would also recommend from our past experience that you have some other variety of yeast on hand to maybe help finish this along. I would also suggest doing multiple oxygenation steps. So when we've done this in the past, we had the best success using a full yeast cake from a previous starter batch that I made, pitching the cake, oxygenating at the time of pitch, and then oxygenating for about the first 36 hours post-pitch every 12 hours. don't... Just to give it a little extra yeah, goose. Don't go much longer than that because uh, one thing you want to avoid is oxygenating uh, when fermentation is wrapped up. That is that is not a good way to make beer. Yeah. So good luck, Jamie, with the project. I'll let you guys know how we're doing with the project. And, oh, uh, yeah, another tip. Uh, floor sherry actually works pretty well as a finishing yeast, although you'll definitely get sherry notes. But not in this particular thing. beer, no, not at not all, man. Thing. Okay. <laughs> that's hey, the question, and I don't think we uh, embarrassed ourselves too badly there. Um, so that means that it's time to move on to the quick tip, and you have that one for us this week. I do, I do. So uh, when I started talking about the pressure transferring that I do in order to uh, transfer between the kegs and purge out so that I get a complete purging, one listener wrote in, and I swear I have been looking for this information. I can't find who sent it in because uh, apparently not powered brain this week. But their suggestion was actually one that made me go, why the hell didn't I think of that before? So when you're done, with when you're in your final keg, I've always just kind of like pushed it out and, and thrown it away. The, uh, listener's suggestion was to actually hook up your keg lines, you know, all your draft lines to the keg and push your cleaners and your sanitizers through it just to get that one little extra shot of cleaning out of all the juice that you've got. So that's a really great idea. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember who sent it to me, but if you reach out and contact me again, I swear I will come back and I will give you proper credit because that's just one of those ideas that made me go, Oh, I should have <laughs> I had a I can't believe you'd never thought of that before. I mean, for me, that's just kind of standard practice. I, well, fine. It's no, standard no, practice I'm, for you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that someone V8 made moment. you smarter. Yeah. 
Just, uh, just wait. Uh, one step closer to learning all the knowledge of the universe. <laughs> oh man, when you uh, when you attain all that, so there's your quick tip. Let me know. Oh uh, well, well, yeah. If I do, I'm sure that's going to be about two seconds. <laughs> There'll be a I giant die. blinding so, flash of light, and uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know everything. Dunk. All right, that's the quick tip of the week. Denny, it's finally time for you to give us something other than beer. Okay, well, as uh, anyone who knows anything about Drew and I is aware, we are both cooking freaks. Uh, We've talked about various cooking shows before in this segment of our show, and uh, I have a new one, actually an old favorite that has been around for years that I've been watching again recently and uh, thinking about how much I enjoy. It is called New Scandinavian Cooking. They have a website, newscancook.com. We'll link to that for you. The uh, They have a number of hosts. The two main hosts are a guy named uh, Andreas Vistad and a woman named Tina Nordstrom. They travel to different parts of the frozen north, cooking dishes, investigating the history behind foods. And I find this show absolutely fascinating for several reasons. Number one... It's familiar, but it's different. You know, these guys are out foraging in the woods and and using things that we would probably never think to use to make dishes that are 90% something that we would think about doing. Uh, The other thing that always astounds me about the show is that no matter what the weather Every single cooking scene is shot outdoors uh, on a ship crossing a fjord in uh, driving rain, standing out in a blizzard, uh, making a stew on a little table with a little gas burner on it. Uh, It is just totally fascinating and enjoyable. And if you're into cooking shows the way we are, I would highly recommend that you guys check this one out. The hosts are extremely personable, great dry senses of humor, interesting recipes, uh, different different scenery than uh, you're used to seeing on a cooking show. So once again, that's New Scandinavian Cooking. I find it on my local PBS station. And I know it's around there a number of places, so go out, look for it, find it. Yeah, and I'm just looking through, and uh, not only are there a lot more uh, consonants in some of the names of their ingredients, but they seem to have a real fondness for cod yeah, and well, beets. they do in all kinds of <laughs> local organic stuff. That is very much what they do. And uh, like I say, some of the ingredients they, they come up with, you kind of go, whoever thought about eating that? But then they use it in a context that is somewhat familiar. So uh, the other thing that I find enjoyable Ooh, is their I, use of the English language because these people speak really, really good English, better than I could ever speak Norwegian. But every once in a while, they use words in a strange way where you kind of go, that's that's kind of amusing. You're not laughing at them. You're laughing with them. Yeah, well, now I'm looking at one of the recipes here. It's a, a pearl barley cream pudding yeah. with black currant sauce. And yeah, I know, man. So awesome. anyway, that's that's my uh, latest cooking show obsession, and I hope some of you guys will take a look at it also because it's a ton of fun. All right, I think it's time to get out of yeah, here. Yeah, I I think so too, man. I think that uh, I've used as much of my voice as I have left. So thanks a lot for joining us uh, on this episode of Experimental Brewing. Don't forget to catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to experimentalbrew.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we're at Experimental Brew. There is an Experimental Brewing uh, Facebook page you can catch us at. 
I'm on uh, a lot of beer discussion forums out there, and uh, Drew shows up frequently on the Reddit Homebrewing Forum. You can uh, also get in touch with us uh, to suggest uh, topics, recipes, experiments, ask us a question, or just rant and rave by emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. Oh, and hey, something new that we've just added. We have a phone number yeah. now. So, yeah, so if you want to actually leave us a voicemail, like either a question or the Brew Year's Resolution thing that we were talking about earlier in the show, you want to leave a, suge- a suggestion, uh, please give us a call at 626 765 one ale again that's six two six seven six five one ale so until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky and we'll see you on the next episode of experimental brewing 